Hey everybody, this is Alex and Reagan. Welcome back to the episode of the Oregon Bridge Podcast. It does not seem to me categorically true that Measure 110 is driving the drug crisis in Portland such that absent Measure 110, there would be no drug crisis in Portland. It's hard to tease out cause and effect there. But it very clearly is not alleviating the drug crisis in Portland, and it very clearly is contributing to mass public drug use. The reason the DPA came to Oregon to pass this bill is because Oregon has a history of the most progressive drug policy in the United States. Prior to 110, you could not go to prison for drug possession in Oregon. You've not been able to go to prison for drug possession in Oregon for decades. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode. Today, we are very excited to bring you Charles Lehman. And Charles is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, where he primarily works on policing and public safety initiatives. He's been published in a lot of high-profile media outlets, such as the Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, and then National Review. He's also testified before commissions, as well as spoken in a number of colleges, and is a 2023 to 2024 Robert Novak Fellow. And for folks who are unaware, the Manhattan Institute is a center-right think tank that is based in New York. They are most prominently known for some of their more, quote-unquote, tough-on-crime policing policies. They had some fellows there who invented the broken windows theory, which you can definitely go on Google and read a little bit more about, and Charles talks about as well. This episode, we talk a lot about drugs, policing, public safety in downtown Portland, as well as across the country and in Oregon. And we really get into some of the specific details around what drugs are, how he thinks they're impacting folks, what does the hard data actually look like, and then kind of what's coming as well. So I think we hit quite a lot of areas and partially did this episode to give the other perspective from having the folks from the Drug Policy Alliance on quite some time ago who were kind of the lead implementers and change makers in regards to Measure 110. But Reagan, what did you think of the episode? I thought it was great. I mean, Measure 110, we can't stop talking about it. That's because it matters. It's obviously pretty impactful to Oregon. And so his writing has had an impact here. And there's continuing developments in the story about Measure 110 that we talk about in the episode. And so ultimately, I think it was really informative and a pretty ultimately pretty nerdy deep dive into drug policy. But I think it's important for people to start to get in the weeds on this because of how much it matters, especially to the future of Oregon. So I thought it was a great episode. And Charles really thinks through these issues pretty thoughtfully. He gives both sides on a lot of these issues and talks about what we can know and what we can't know. He's honest about what data is available and what you can extrapolate from that. Awesome. Well, yeah, well, we'll go ahead and just dive right into the episode. Make sure to check us out on YouTube. And then, of course, we're available on all podcast platforms. So enjoy the episode. Now that the legislative session is over, it's time for Oregon's activists, candidates, and political committees to turn their attention to the 2024 elections. With government regulation of political activities becoming more complicated nearly every year, and with political actors increasingly initiating complaints and litigation to achieve political goals, having experienced legal counsel has become critical to success in the political arena. Harang Long PC has represented clients involved in candidate and ballot measure elections for decades. To learn more about Harang Long's political law practice, check out our website at harang.com. That's www.harrang.com. 
All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. Today, we are very excited to welcome Charles Lehman with us. Charles, how's it going? It's great. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's good to be on. Awesome. And where are you coming from today? Right now, I live in my home slash office because I work from home. I'm outside of DC, which is where I live with my wife and son. Okay, very nice. Yeah, good to have you on. And then, Charles, you work for the Manhattan Institute and you're a senior fellow there. I think a lot of the viewers probably are, don't know what the Manhattan Institute is. Uh, I would say probably also don't know what the Manhattan Institute is famous for in terms of sure. coming up with some of the public safety policy for the 80s. Could you give us a little bit of background on the Manhattan Institute, what the organization is, some of the different focus areas, just some of that high level stuff I think would be helpful. Sure. And you know, at the macro level, we're think tank. That means that we have a bunch of scholars who put out policy papers on a wide variety of topics. Part of what differentiates us the Manhattan Institute. My employer is based in New York City, obviously not. And our primary focus, although not exclusive, is on issues affecting urban life in America. So, you know, we are the right-leaning think tank that is sort of most dedicated to the question of how can we make our cities better? How can we improve them? How can we make them cleaner, safer, more economically sustainable, more dynamic, more innovative, et cetera? I actually work primarily on our policing public safety initiative, although my work also touches pretty heavily on drugs and drug policy. There's sort of an intersection there, um, as we're going to talk about today. NMI has sort of a long and started history with public safety. My colleague, Heather McDonald, may be familiar to many of your listeners as you know one of the greats in public safety. And then before even Heather came on board, MI, one of our first major contributions was being a major driver of the push of broken windows policing in the 1990s. Rudy Giuliani became mayor of New York. He stole most of his policy ideas from the Manhattan Institute. So, you know, that's sort of where we come from in the public safety issue. I and I, I have a number of great colleagues, all of whom are very interested in sort of carrying that legacy forward and applying it to the 21st century as applies to 21st century urban problems in public safety, which there are many. Awesome. Yeah. And I did want to ask you, and we'll talk a lot about drugs in this episode as well. From my perspective, drug policy has changed a lot in the last, you know, say 50 years, which is a pretty broad statement. But We've gone from Nixon's war on drugs to, I would say, the more modern times where you actually see not just a lot of more progressive liberal or blue states, but actually a lot of red states as well, transitioning to, I would say, not full decriminalization, but there's right there's a lot of red states now that have legalized marijuana or at least decriminalized it, right? So that seems to be kind of where... The modern trend, at least at this time, is kind of going in the sense of legalization or decriminalization, at least in some places. How did we get from that to where we are today? And obviously, there's a lot of stuff there, but give us the 30,000 foot, you know, drug policy over the last 50 years for dummies version. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I think I might even go back a little bit earlier to the 60s and 70s and say, even before that, the 50s, over the course of the early 20th century, America and the rest of the world, even the late 19th century, starting the late 19th century, we discover all of these pharmaceutical products. Modern chemistry is born in the late 19th century, early 20th century. We develop drugs like heroin, cocaine, refined semi-organic substances. We discover that they're a lot of fun. We do them, we do a lot of them. I just wrote an article about the history of amphetamine, and by the mid-1960s, most American housewives are on amphetamine or by Richards by the mid-1960s. Americans consume huge volumes of drugs over the course of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And, you know, I think we start to experience the burnout that's associated with mass amphetamine use, mass marijuana use, mass heroin use, eventually mass cocaine use. 
And so in the 80s and 90s, there's sort of a movement towards suppression. You know, drugs, drugs prior to this point are, of course, illegal, but there's a shift in how we think about the policy of drugs. There are pros and cons approach I am more sympathetic to. We talked about the drug war than some people that think they got some things right and they got some things wrong from a policy perspective. But there was a mass suppression of drug consumption in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, both at a policy level, cops knocking down doors and arresting people and you know spraying plants in Columbia, but also of social hostility to drugs. I wrote an article uh, maybe a year or two ago about a guy named Herman Rice, who's a Philadelphia-based, he's a big black guy, Philadelphia-based anti-drug crusader who like organizes these marches in Philadelphia's black communities to go and mm-hmm. occupy drug dealer corners and like protest against the drug dealers. It's a wonderful that's, story. That's still happening today? And that's the best of my knowledge, uh, oh, quite okay. possibly. I, this is the 90s. He died in the mid-2000s. But this is okay, a period of you know, in, increased embrace of sobriety. And I think that is today perceived as, in some ways rightly, in some ways wrongly, excessive in its own way. There is, in my mind, a I think an accurate argument that contributes to, to contributes substantially to mass incarceration. There's a sense that the sort of the costs of enforcing prohibition that way would not worth the benefits. Again, I think there are pros and cons. Today, we are seeing a return of drugs licitly and illicitly across a variety of measures. So you talk about marijuana legalization, which is spreading across the country quite rapidly. We're on the forefront, I suspect, of psychedelic legalization. That's really stepping into high gear over the next several years. More Americans than ever on a variety of pills, amphetamines, antidepressants, antipsychotics. We are consuming, and of course, we're consuming illicit drugs at unprecedented levels when you look at rates of overdose death. Uh, 100,000 people probably died last year. It's uh, almost certainly, this is the best estimate we have. More than 100,000 people died of drug overdose deaths last year and the year before wow. that. That is historically unprecedented. It's never been that bad in the history of the Republic, either in absolute terms or on a per capita basis. Um, so we're doing a lot of drugs again. They're back. And you know, I think we are, if, if the pendulum swings back and forth between excess and abstinence, we are currently on the excess side of the curve. And we have been probably for the past 10 years mm. you could argue you know you can date it to the first marijuana legalization maybe 2012 but certainly certainly that's the sort of character of the period that we're in gotcha interesting yeah reagan's told me all about how fun those drugs are he's a real big user so uh, <laughs> want to make it clear for all the listeners that's uh, completely made up fake we news. do have some libel on this podcast so i had to, had to get that in there no, that, that's, a, yeah, I guess I've never really thought about it in terms of a pendulum, but that is actually interesting. And frankly, how most public policy and kind of issues and preferences seem to work. And I do have, I guess, one more sort of basic question for you, Charles. So we'll talk, you know, quite a bit about fentanyl, or I think, especially Oregonians, we hear about fentanyl all the time now, right? We hear about, you know, one drug dealer in Eugene who had, I think, enough fentanyl pills to like kill the entire state of Oregon, right? There was some big article about that. There is of course medical fentanyl, right? Like people have actually used fentanyl for medical purposes, sometimes at the hospital, right? What is the difference between like, first of all, what is fentanyl? And then what is the difference between the fentanyl that, I don't know, maybe you're given at the hospital if you're a cancer patient or have a bad injury or something like that versus the dope that they're currently selling on the street right now, which I'm sure there's different purities there, things that are added. Give us kind of a basic definition of what actually is fentanyl and then what are kind of some of the different strains or like does fentanyl injected? You just take it in pill form. I'm kind of curious of an overview. Yeah. Just on that. So fentanyl is an opioid, which means it stimulates the system of opioid receptors, which to put it in very simple terms, make you feel really good. Opioids are, they induce euphoria, they, and they induce central nervous system depressions. You get sleepy, you get happy, you feel warm and fuzzy. If you've ever prescribed codeine or 
oxycodone. People get prescribed opioids for pain suppression because they're very good at that. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid. What does that mean? Okay, so opioids are opioids are named for opium, which are products of the opium poppy, which is it has a sap and the sap contains things that stimulate the opioid system. You can refine that into morphine. You can refine it further into heroin. Those are semi-synthetic opioids. They're made through, the, you, you take the sap and you turn it into a more refined product. Fentanyl is purely synthetic. You take very simple precursor chemicals. There's no opium poppy involved. And you produce, you can use those through chemistry. You can produce fentanyl bypassing the whole organic production process. This is really, let me get into this if you want. This is incredibly useful if you are trying to run either illicit or an illicit drug production operation. So like what's fentanyl's history in the 1960s, Janssen Pharmaceutical produces this synthetic opioid painkiller. It's really useful because opium poppy production is strongly controlled by international treaties. If you can just grow it in the lab with approved chemicals, like that's a cost-cutting measure. What's happened today, and again, it's a long conversation, is that cartels have figured out how to do this too. So like, what's the difference between fentanyl on the street and fentanyl in fentanyl hospital? The chemical level, nothing, right? My wife, when she gave birth, she got an epidural. The epidural is fentanyl. She can fentanyl is fine. It's like, that's fine. I'm epidural is fentanyl. Yeah. Oh, it's just, okay. It's yeah, it's fine. And, and, you know, and, and this, by the way, is true of lots of drugs. The, my favorite examples of this are you can get cocaine as a Schedule II drug. You can get it in hospitals because you can use it. It mobilizes the eye. So it's used in eye surgery. The same thing is true of methamphetamine. Every year, there are a number of kids with severe ADHD who prescribe methamphetamine. It's called disoxin. So like, the answer is the difference between street fentanyl and medical fentanyl is predominantly the the context in which it is administered. You're getting, when you're in the hospital getting fentanyl, it's in a controlled environment for a limited period of time. You are not dosing yourself. Your risk of addiction is pretty low, especially if you're doing an acute context. Nobody's giving you over-the-counter fentanyl. You also, if you're getting fentanyl repeatedly, mm-hmm. it's basically for like end-stage cancer pain. Like you can get a fentanyl patch for that. It's like, they don't really care if you're addicted to fentanyl because you have end-stage cancer. It's fine for you to be addicted to fentanyl. Yeah. But so what you're seeing, what, what happens in the street is that people are dosing themselves with opioids. And that is exactly the context that is conducive to addictive behavior. So you can consume fentanyl in a number of ways. You can inject it. I think often what you see on the streets of Portland, which I guess we're talking about, is people smoking it. That was my experience in Portland, is what you do, you, you have a little pill or powder, you put it on a piece of foil, you hold a lighter under the foil, and you have a straw, and you burn the fentanyl, it vaporizes, and you suck up the vapor. I don't think you can consume it edibly. It's not reactive in that way, but I'm not 100% certain about that. I have to look that up. I don't think so, because you can't get high by contact. But so, yeah, I mean, the, the answer is this is a drug, like many drugs that have been around in a controlled pharmaceutical environment for a long time and are fine under the supervision of a doctor, have low risk of addiction. The problem is once, you know, somebody starts selling it on the street, then you will necessarily pick up, you will use for longer, your risk of addiction will increase substantially. Once you have compulsive use, all the harms attendant obtain. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And that's, uh, I just finished watching that show on Netflix. I'm blanking on what it's called, but it's about Purdue and opioids, Oxycontin, all that sort of stuff. And that's kind of the story of the, I don't even remember what the guy's name is, right? But he got the back injury, started taking one pill, then he clearly started dosing for himself, then he became an addict. And then, of course, there was kind of that whole story and storyline that happened there. But that's interesting that I guess you're saying it's really not that different between what the actual folks in the hospital are taking versus what someone on the street might. It's more of that dosage control. Obviously, if there's extra or different chemicals added in or it's laced with something that could cause, you know, damage or medical issues and things of that sort. But okay, that I thought there was like the good fentanyl, the bad fentanyl, which it sounds like that's all a little fentanyl. bit true, but yeah, that's, it's, all, it's fentanyl. all the same. Okay. I mean, there's stuff in the street fentanyl. That's a separate problem. Yeah. Like they add adult But like, 
you can get very pure fentanyl on the street. What part of it's happened with fentanyl? Fentanyl is like, one way to think about the rise of fentanyl OD deaths in the United States, and 70% of OD deaths in America today involve fentanyl. One way to think about it is that fentanyl represents a revolution in productivity and drug production for the illicit side of the market. Mm. It used like fentanyl is like going from you know, small crops that you grow in your backyard to like, you know, Monsanto, except not really because it's a different transition. Um, <laughs> yeah. But having to grow opium poppies out in the open and then refine them and process them into heroin is incredibly labor and capital intensive. If you have a guy in a lab and some chemicals from China, then you can produce a great product at like a fraction of cost. And the result of the fentanyl transition is that the price of heroin and the price of fentanyl, personally, you can't get heroin anymore. If you go out, hang out in Portland, you're not going to be able to find heroin. You're going to get only fentanyl. But the price of fentanyl has collapsed. It's like 95% down of where it was, if you go with the timeline, it's five, 10 years ago. It's essentially free. You can buy a fentanyl pill on the street of Portland for two bucks. That's nothing. And so, you know, it's, it's that transition, that sort of dramatic increase in the efficiency of the market that mm. is part of what's driving the problem. It's just much cheaper to get much, much higher. And fentanyl is much deadlier than other opioids because basically because it's more potent per dose. The, mm -hmm. the distance between effective dose and its overdose dose is much smaller is the technical way to think about it. And so this like widely available, extremely cheap, extremely potent, extremely addictive substance doesn't end well. Yeah. Okay. And hold on to that thought about supply, because that, that is something I want to ask you about a little bit later. But before we get into your article and your, your trip to Portland, I did want to ask a little bit more of a general question about decriminalization and legalization. And I think not just for Measure 10, but I think this argument gets brought up a lot when it comes to drug policy as folks say, well, you know, the U.S. does it all wrong. If you look at the Dutch, so the Netherlands, then you look at Portugal, they decriminalized and or legalized drugs. And, you know, at least from just kind of the, I'd say, more high level talking points, they'd say, well, there's less crime, less addiction, kind of that sort of thing. Could you give us, as someone who, again, actually works on this issue like all day, basically, what is the comparison between what Measure 110 did, which was basically just straight across the board decriminalization, versus what Portugal and then also what the Dutch did when it came to kind of their decriminalization or legalization scheme? Yeah, so I think it's important to emphasize that like decriminalization and legalization are often used interchangeably as terms, and they're not. Mm -hmm. And indeed, there's a great deal of spectrum even within both decriminalization and legalization. Mm -hmm. All of the countries that we're talking about here, the Netherlands, Portugal, and the United States are signatories to international treaties that are a century old and require them to prohibit the sale of certain substances. And when we talk about decriminalization and legalization, you are talking about, you can talk about different behaviors, right? You can talk about changing the status of sale, of production, of possession, of consumption. So the way that the, what we end up meaning by decriminalization ends up looking very different depending on which of those variables you're affecting and how you treat them specifically. So Portugal, which I know a little bit more, I'm, I know a little bit more about than the Amsterdam approach. The Portuguese approach is possession of drugs is decriminalized in the sense of if you are found to be in possession of drugs in public, you can be issued a citation to appear before a dissuasion commission. And the dissuasion commission says, how's your drug use? Is your drug use problematic? Do you want to get mm -hmm. into treatment? No, okay. They're not going to compel you to go to treatment, but if you keep getting ticketed by the cops and sent to the dissuasion commission. What I like to say is, you know, it's a public health approach because we all learned over the past three years. Public health can be plenty coercive. It's it's very mm -hmm. easy. So that you know, the Portuguese approach has two things. One is the Vivian Dissuasion Commission. So the model is if you are in found publicly in possession of drugs in a 
socially harmful fashion, there will be some cost imposed on you and that cost will compound over time because you can keep going mm, in front of okay. these doctors. You'd be like, what's wrong with you? And two is that they have treatment on demand. Certainly that's the ideal. So if you're in Portugal, in theory, you should be able to get a treatment whenever you want immediately. In Oregon, we have, you have neither of these things. In Oregon, mm -hmm. Measure 110 stipulation is that small possession, which is to say possession of drugs below a certain weight is decriminalized. You cannot get jail time for it. You cannot be arrested for it. It's worth noting that nobody went to prison for drugs before Measure 110 either. In Oregon, no, for small possession, there's no effect on the prison population of Measure 110. Mm. Instead, you can be issued a $100 ticket. If you don't pay the ticket, there's no enforcement. You can void the ticket by calling a hotline where they tell you what services. So there's no stick involved. There's no even social stick involved. And then also there's no treatment capacity. Oregon, by at least one measure, has the highest share of residents in the nation in need of treatment who are not getting it. It's like most states have inadequate treatment. Oregon is at the top of the pack of states that have inadequate treatment. And as we talk about, measure 110 funds are not going to remedy that situation. So what happens is that it is, you know, what I would say about Portugal is it is entirely possible to describe a system where drug use and drug possession are dealt with through different semi-coercive methods than just putting people in jail. That's a thing you can do under certain circumstances without everything falling apart. What you can't do is have no negative consequences whatsoever associated with public harmful drug use. You can't do that. And that is more or less the approach that's been taken in Oregon to predictable out results. And what is the, you said Portugal gives treatment on demand. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what is that? Like, is that like, I, you know, a police officer pulls me over on the street. I have a bunch of heroin on top of me or fentanyl. And they say, I will take you right now to a treatment center and we will just get you in a hospital bed. Like, is that kind of what that compares to versus yes. the, yes. you know, here's a ticket, call this hotline approach. Well, so, and just to clarify, it's not that the police officer can compel you to go into treatment in Portugal. They can't. Mm -hmm. They can make you show up in front of a dissuasion commission, and the dissuasion commission can really lean on you to go to treatment. They can't force you, but legally, but they can really lean on you. But it means that you have adequate bed capacity to, at any point, if somebody wants to go into treatment, they can do so immediately. There's no waiting time. That's the dream. Wow. Okay. And by the way, Portugal is struggling with this today. There's a piece in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago that got a lot of attention about Portugal's problems with decrim. And my read of it is like basically Portugal, like every other European country, has been stagnant since its growth and therefore tax receipts since the Great Recession. And yeah. as a consequence of that, they are the dream of treatment on demand is running up against the hard reality of having enough cash. But that's still mm, the goal. And it's like a lot more yeah. doable in a country of, I think, 7 million people. It's not a large population. So that's, you know, like, like if you want to switch to a sort of purely treatment first approach in the Portuguese model, you need that kind of, among other factors, you need that kind of uh, capacity. That makes a lot of sense. So you talked about, referenced it a couple of times. You went to Portland. I think my first question is, what were you thinking going to Portland? <laughs> no, my real question is, did you go there to study the drug use in Portland or did you just happen to be there and start writing about it? Yeah, no, that was, uh, it was, it was delivered for, um, and the pieces in City Journal. Could you listen, check it out. But there's a specific assignment to go out there to Portland and see what the situation was like on the ground. Can you give us right, so uh, the piece is titled This Is Your City on Fentanyl, which is a great headline. And it definitely made the rounds in Oregon after it came out. And can you just give us an overview of the piece and what you found? Uh, so, you know, I spent a few days in the city. I talked to a lot of stakeholders. And, you know, I think I saw a couple of things. One is that there's clearly a problem with uncontrolled public drug use in Portland. Substantial. And I think any resident, any, any of your listeners in Portland knows that this is true. It's not just, you know, that some people are using drugs. It's that 
you know, you can wander around port, large portions of the city and see mass camping, public smoking, public injecting, public drug sales, which are principally, in principle, still illegal. But of course, nobody ever carries in criminal amounts anymore. You just carry enough that you can only ever get ticketed and, and cops can't do anything about it. And of course, the cops cannot do anything about public drug use either because it is not prohibited. All they can do is issue a ticket and offer people services. So that's one thing I saw. And the second thing that I saw is that, so Measure 110 has two components, right? Measure 110 is decriminalization of small possession and then diverting revenue from the marijuana tax revenue fund to a wide variety of services, many of which were billed to the public as focused on treatment, but which in effect are an umbrella of things often termed harm reduction and recovery services, which can mean everything from, as I discovered, the state paying for free socks and needles for people to acupuncture services to just free food for people who are using drugs from Measure 110 funded Measure 110 funding beneficiaries. Yeah, you know, I think look, Portland is not unique among cities. Oregon is not unique among states in having a drug crisis. Lots of places have drug crisis. I think crises. I think what is remarkable to me is that Measure 110 was built as a solution to literally the worst drug crisis in American history, and most of it appears to me to be as an abdication of responsibility for coping the crisis, sort of throwing the state's hand in the air saying, well, lots of people are addicted to drugs, but it's very mean to try to make do anything about it. So let's just sort of make their lives more comfortable and hope that they will decide to get treatment on their own. That, that's inadequate. So you talk about in the piece, you talk about the pretty high rate, as much as 9% of Oregonians being addicted to an illicit drug. That's a 2020 number, I think. And that's pretty much more than every other state. And then you talk a little bit about the Portland Police Department and a, an officer there that you talked to. How are they dealing with it on the ground or what are they able to do on the ground? Well, PPB is a huge mess. The answer is they aren't able to do anything. Portland has one of the most unattractive departments in the country. Among the 50 largest cities in the country, Portland ranks 48th for police to population ratio. It's like 1.26 officers for every thousand people. And you really want to have a, like the national, the median in that group is like 1.8. You really want to get about two. That's sort of the standard. So like Portland simply does not have enough cops. That's like the reality of the situation. They don't have the bandwidth to deal with emergencies. They really don't have the bandwidth to go around doing drug enforcement. And when they do, there's no point to it. I, when I was in Portland, I rode along Quick guy, uh, Officer Dan DiMatteo, very, you know, he's been on the force for two decades. Something I've learned in my experience doing ride alongs talking to cops is that you want to find the guys who've been doing it for like 20 or 30 years because they're the most knowledgeable. They're the most interested in the jobs. They're usually the most professional. I've met some young cops who are not professional. The old cops are usually pretty professional. They make the force look good. But, you know, we rode around and Officer DiMatteo told me a story at one point he said, you know, he made friends with a woman who's a chronic meth user living on the streets of Portland. And, you know, one day he was talking to her and he saw, you know, he can't arrest her. She was like, do you want to give me a ticket just so you can check the box? She was like, no, that's okay. Okay, fine. And he was talking to her about services, saying, you know, I can help you get to shelter. I have access to, I can help you get into treatment. I can get you in line for treatment. What can I do for you? And a guy, a Portland resident, pulls up in his car and starts yelling at him. He's like, leave her alone. You, you cops need to leave people alone on duty. And the woman starts yelling back at the guy. She's like, no, he's my friend. He's trying to help me. And the guy's just like, no, he's trying to mess with you. Like, I'm I'm here to switch. Which is just really a perfect summary of the ethos in Measure 110, right? It's like, fundamentally, the problems that drug users face are produced entirely by the government and we need to let the government get the government to just leave them alone and let them die in the street and that is what you know freedom consists in so i think portland police officers like many police officers are 
deeply demoralized by the current situation. And they are doubly, they in Portland are doubly so because on top of everything else, they see uncontrolled camping and homelessness and drug use and dysfunction and disorder. And they go, we can't do anything about this. It's prohibited. Well, and I think, I mean, that experience and a lot of what you wrote about is why three days ago, there's an article in the Oregonian about a coalition that's come together that's going to try to amend but not end measure 110 and so i think that that'll be interesting to see how that develops but it includes a law enforcement angle with the washington county district attorney kevin barton who's been on this program dan levy who is a political consultant covering people for portland max williams who's a former director of the oregon department of corrections and so you have this understanding from a lot of folks in portland that the situation is pretty bad but i'm not sure that that's as a pervasive of a feeling as I think it. Th there's polling that shows the majority of Oregonians say that Measure 110 doesn't work. I'm not sure that there's any evidence that a majority of the elected officials in Oregon, primarily dominated by Democrats and the city of Portland, that completely dominated by Democrats, that that is the predominant feeling. And so I think we're going to see really where that shakes out and whether the folks that were very, very supportive of 110 are going to be supportive of amending it in order to keep it because the alternative potentially is that folks will get together and just ax the whole thing potentially. Now that might be the bigger lift, but I think it's pretty, it's a significant change and it's the drug policy alliance in a lot of the groups. There's a couple of groups in Oregon locally that are more radical on it even. And those folks have all tried to put out polling that says measure 110 is super popular. And that's just, this is not the case, I think ultimately. And I really, the one thing I want to ask you about before I let Alex ask another question, the discourse online, especially on a lot of this stuff, is fascinating. And of course, Twitter isn't real life. I guess it's now called X, formerly known as Twitter. There's a lot of picture taking of Portland residents and even some journalists who live in Portland taking selfies at the locations that are you know, described by national news organizations as a hotbed of drug use. And they say, oh, you know, look at all the drug deals that are happening on the sunny afternoon in Portland. What do you think about that kind of response to these pieces and New York Times coverage? I mean, I am very careful about, and uh, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's preposterous. It's callous in the extreme. I don't understand how you can look, go to Chinatown, go to, I guess they cleared out Fourth in Washington, but it was really bad when I was there. There's some beautiful bridges in Portland that people just live under and camp on. You don't have to think that those people should be in prison to think that that is a sustainable situation that a civilized society should do nothing about. It is alarming to me. But that said, look, I am very careful about what I say Measure 110 does and does not do. There are folks on my side of the aisle who say Measure 110 is at fault for the increase in homicide in Portland. And I just don't think that bears out mm -hmm. reality. I quote a, a, a cop source who says, no, it has to do with COVID area decarceration. And I buy that story. Uh, you know, I, I don't even necessarily think, I think there is some evidence, although it is not just positive, that Measure 110 is associated with an increase in drug overdose deaths. I think you can go back and forth on that one. But every city, every major jurisdiction is seeing massive increase in drug overdose deaths. So it's clearly swamped, you know. That I think is important. But, you know, I think you see people making this argument going, well, sure, we passed drug decriminalization, but we haven't ended homelessness. There's still a housing crisis. We haven't abolished racism, so there's still structural racism. People are still dealing with the intergenerational trauma. The response is like, okay, but the, the promise of decriminalization, the agenda of Measure 110, and by extension, the whole drug legalization program is we will produce a radical turnaround in the status quo. So the strongest argument being made by Measure 110 advocates is 
things are not actually as completely awful as people claim they are. We agree that they're bad, but they aren't as bad as you think, and they're bad for other reasons. To which my response is, if that is the best you can say for your policy program, your policy program has failed, right? Like, and this is my point. Measure 110 is not ultimately, it does not seem to me categorically true that Measure 110 is driving the drug crisis in Portland such that absent Measure 110, there would be no drug crisis in Portland. Mm, and I believe it's yeah. a contributor. Yeah, probably. It's hard to tease out cause and effect there. But it very clearly is not alleviating the drug crisis in Portland. And it very clearly is contributing to mass public drug use. We can see that cause and effect quite clearly. So the argument has to be, is Measure 110 better than the status quo ante? And it seems overwhelmingly like the answer is no. And by the way, you talked about this coalition of folks who are trying to reform 110. I know a couple of folks involved with that, and they will make the point, and I will make the point on their behalf. Prior to 110, the reason the DPA came to Oregon to pass this bill is because Oregon has a history of the most progressive drug policy in the United States. As I alluded to earlier, prior to 110, you could not go to prison for drug possession in the United States, You've not in, in Oregon. You've not been able to go to prison for drug possession in Oregon for decades. Mm-hmm. There's a null effect on the prison population of Oregon after passage of Measure 110 because of this reality. We're getting one of the most progressive drug court systems in the United States, which has been completely gutted by 110 because nobody gets involved in the drug court anymore. So my point is, I think the strongest argument that you can make for your policy proposal is things are not as apocalyptic as my opponents claim they are, that it's not, it doesn't really have a leg to stand on. 110 perhaps is not destroying Portland single-handedly, but sure as heck isn't making the problem better. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think that my response to a lot of the folks that are taking those pictures is it's very funny to say you're a journalist and do journalism, which is the pursuit of facts, and then find anecdotal evidence to disprove all of this reporting that says that Portland is sinking under this awful drug crisis, which is not journalism. It's the opposite of journalism. It's anecdata is what they call it sometimes. Or I have heard people say where it's like, individual points and you're what you're saying is these drug policy coalitions are kind of like well here's a point that shows that things aren't quite as bad which is like it's an anecdotal piece of data that supports their hypothesis but broadly speaking that's not the main case let me get really in the weeds here and i don't want to point yes, please too much but so 110 was funded dramatically by out-of-state donors as you know it's like chan foundation dpa which spent five million dollars on Passing 110, much of DPA's funding came from an entity called Arnold Ventures, which is run by Lauren John Arnold. He's a Texas-based billionaire. Um, I actually like a lot of the work that they do. I think they're thoughtful work. But the thing that really gets my goat, so the Arnold Ventures has funded Measure 110, and they funded an evaluation of Measure 110. The evaluation is being done mm-hmm. by the Research Triangle Institute, RTI, which is a think tank in the Research Triangle area. And the guy, the principal investigator on this is going to Alex Kral, K-R-A-L. How do I put this? Alex Kral, think, is... If you wanted it for a measure 110 outcome as a foregone conclusion, you would <laughs> give money to Alex Kroll. And his evalu- I read his evaluations. They are very bad. They're not designed as serious policy evaluations on this topic. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's a little bit in the weeds. That's the sort of thing that I care about. That listeners don't necessarily care about. But I think it is important that these evaluations are going to end up. And, you know, I don't want to cast aspersions on... Arnold, because I, I genuinely don't know if they knew this was going to be the outcome when they funded this, if they knew that about the person they were funding. But it is telling to me that, you know, people are going to go and look at this evaluation. It's going to go, there's no problem in Portland. It's all totally fine. There's no problem in Oregon. It's all totally fine. And it's like, yeah, if you cherry pick your data and if you ignore the evidence, not even just, you know, the evidence of your eyes, but the evidence in the numbers themselves, you are absolutely going to find that. That is true. It is very easy to lie with numbers. And this is what happens all the time around 
liberalization. The same thing happened at the Link Center in San Francisco. The same thing is happening in Vancouver and across Canada with their efforts at safer supply, quote unquote. There's all sorts of lying with numbers in this space. And Charles, that's a great transition because I did want to ask you a couple of numbers questions. And I will not use his name because he asked me to keep it on background. But another prominent drug policy expert had told me he was actually very excited that Oregon had passed Measure 110 because it would be like the ultimate democratic testing tube to see, okay, if you really go from, you know, up to this end of the spectrum, what happens basically? Like, what do the numbers look like? What do the outcomes look like? What do the stats look like? Obviously, Measure 10, of course, is not that old yet. I mean, it's it's what been implemented at this point or been going for maybe two-ish two years, two and a half years, three years. Yeah, two and a half what numbers so far, and it sounds like that that's a, a pretty difficult question, actually, but what numbers can we pull so far in the sense of, it sounds like you think it's probably contributing to more drug usage and drug overdose, at least generally, but that's hard to parse out. What does it look like from the treatment perspective, pre and then post measure 110? And the other thing I wanted to ask is, is there any evidence that 110 is causing new people to use drugs who had not used drugs before, potentially. Obviously, I think this is just a hard field to get accurate and good data around anyway, but curious of any sort of hard statistics that we could potentially kind of post out so far. So I can talk about in other spaces, I think I'm going to, you know, I'm going to punt on this question a little bit for the reason that the relevant federal surveys for 2022 onwards have not yet been published. So like Mm, there's... It's passed in 2020, at the end of 2020, there's a 2021 wave of the relevant survey in early 2021. So there's not really time for anything to show up. So we don't really know until the 2022 versions of the survey come out, what statistics look like. We know that Oregon OD deaths have increased dramatically. We know that homelessness levels have increased, and we know that drug overdose deaths among the homeless have increased dramatically. Can we say that's true measure 110? Maybe, but... Would I make the argument ex ante that it's a contributing factor? Yes. Can the evidence tell us that? Well, not necessarily because we see dramatic increases in homelessness and drug overdose death across the West Coast. You know, if you pick your comparison state, by the way, this is made harder by the fact that Washington also judicially essentially decriminalized drugs for a period of about a year at exactly the same time that Oregon did. So the obvious comparison state is treated at the same time. It's a huge pain. If I wanted to be, if I wanted to be really aggressive, I would say, yeah, look, there are huge numbers of drug duty deaths in Portland. It's crazy not to argue as a contributor. You see people selling drugs on the street. Supply is more widely available. That's going to drive an uptick. But I try to be empirically cautious. And so what I'd say is we don't know yet because we don't have good, we don't really have the data yet. We know a couple of things. We know that there's some good measures of things not working. My favorite is so we talked about the citations into 110. You get you get a ticket in lieu of arrest if you're caught in possession in public. So the figure I have is as of August 2022, which is like almost two years in, there were about 3,000 possession citations had been issued statewide. And those 4% of people had actually called the hotline to get information about resources. 1% had actually requested treatment. The state estimated that in the first 15 months, it cost the state $7,000 per call to operate this hotline. Wow. Where's that number from? That's from the Oregon Secretary of State. Oh, okay. Um, so from in, the their, in their initial itself. evaluation, yes. Um, in the wow, initial evaluation. Because okay. of the rollout um, of 110, the Secretary of State, and this might have been before there were still, we had a Republican Secretary of State for four years. And this might have been because, no, I guess this would have been after the election. So, yeah. but anyway, they added the, a 110 audit to the list of audits that they needed to do because of how badly this was going. 
just very briefly to add, the other statistic that I think is telling is property crime rates in Portland, which spike immediately and dramatically in the wake of 110. And the same thing actually happens in Seattle. This is the funny thing that Alice Cross study shows is it doesn't happen in San Francisco. And it doesn't happen in, I forget what the comparison city in Boise, but it does it, right as drugs are decriminalized. And this is exactly what you'd expect because large portions of property crime are simply people stealing to feed their addictions. Mm. A source told me in the early 2000s, Oregon Criminal Justice, State Chartered Criminal Justice Reform Board looked into it and estimated something like 80% of property crimes in the state are driven by addiction. So you exactly, you'd exactly see exactly what you'd expect if people were stealing more to feed their addictions. And then, Charles, I did have a broader question just about treatment in general, because I know when you actually, I mean, this could be with any crime, right? But obviously something being illegal causes a certain level of deterrence, right? In the sense of, you know, if I go up to you and I try to steal your wallet, well, of course, you might actually attack me, but a police officer might also throw me on the ground and arrest me, right? Like that is a deterrent in some way in terms of that. A lot of that deterrence has been removed, right? In the sense of that, you know, you're going to get this ticket if somebody sees you shooting up heroin or something like that. One thing, and I'm, I'm not sure if there's any kind of research around this, but in terms of that aspect being lower... What is the actual chance of, I know addiction, I mean, this is, I mean, one, a very sensitive topic, but two, I know addiction looks a lot different for everybody. I mean, I've known people who like top tier law partners who, you know, make millions of dollars a year who you would never know are alcoholics, right? Like, I mean, they're just, there's different levels of function, of course, depending on what the drug of choice is. What is the actual, I guess, treatment percentage look like for someone who is addicted to fentanyl? Like, is it, is it like a high percentage of people who go into treatment come out successful? Is it very low? I've heard sometimes the numbers, depending on the drug, can be much higher. I know sometimes they're in lower than 10%, but I know that barrier, right, in the sense of if even if you just try fentanyl once, it's, there's a high chance or a higher chance, of course, of addiction than if you don't. What do the actual recovery rates look like for someone in that sort of scenario? Yeah. So the, the macro estimate from NIDA, the National Addiction Drug Abuse, is 40 to 60% of people who go into treatment will relapse at some point. That's across all drugs. The argument they make, which I buy, is that addiction is a disease. You can talk about the disease model of addiction if you want. I think it's a perfectly cromulent model. But if you think about addiction as a disease, addiction is a chronic disease like diabetes. It requires continuous treatment. It's not an acute disease. Again, you can fight with this. So, But it's not surprising if people relapse. You should build relapse into your model of addiction. It probably will happen. It's a risk in any cohort. 46%, the risk is a lot better if you have substitution medication-assisted treatment, which means today it means methadone and buprenorphine. What are methadone and buprenorphine? They are partial opioid agonists. What does that mean? It means that they bind to opioid receptors. They are opioids. They bind to opioid receptors. They do not induce a feeling of euphoria. Technically, I think methadone is partial opioid agonist. Buprenorphine is a full opioid agonist. This doesn't really matter. So they are drugs you can take for to suppress cravings and help you address your desire to use illicit substances, illicit opioids. The success rates are much better on medication assisted treatment. There are some people who respond to this and go, okay, but isn't it like substituting one addiction for another? And my response is, yeah, it totally is doing that. It's sort of like substituting an addiction to chewing gum for an addiction to cigarettes. Like, are you still addicted? Yes. Is it a much safer addiction? Yes. Is your likelihood of death mm, decline dramatically? Yeah. Yes. So it's yeah. kind of worth it. Like, would I like it if we could live in a world where we didn't need Matt and everyone could just get through it with psychotherapy? Yeah, but the psychotherapy rates are terrible, right? Like, we don't have medications mm. to treatment for methamphetamine, for cocaine, for other stimulants, and the success rates of treatment are much lower because of that fact. So 
if people have reliable access to medication treatment, high quality therapies and a wide variety of therapies, their prospects are pretty good. If they don't, less good. Okay. There's no risk yep. even then. Because again, it's, you know, if you buy the disease model, it's chronic disease. But even if you don't buy the disease model, if you buy the learning disability model, it's chronic learning disability. If you think about it, it's a, if, if you buy the, the rational addiction model, it's it's a compounding rational thing. We talk about that. It's like very technical. All plausible models of addiction view it as an ongoing problem. And so in any situation you're going to have, it's going to take, there's a risk of taking many attempts. Gotcha. And then we do, Charles, just have like, I guess, three more kind of broad questions for you. And, and thanks again. And we've been very generous with your time. One question, which you hit on a little bit earlier, I want to talk to you about is just the supply of drugs, right? I've heard, and I mean, I think this point is is fair from some of the, you know, the Drug Policy Alliance or kind of the more pro-drug folks is that the quote unquote war on drugs has failed in the sense of that we haven't lowered supply Prices are cheaper than they've ever been. Drugs are fairly accessible. I mean, I think most people would agree on that. And that seems, you know, pretty like, okay, so you're, you're shaking your head. So I'll let you go there. But my question is, you know, in terms of your kind of approach to this, right? Like, and it sounds like it's obviously multi-pronged in terms of you need treatment, maybe you tackle supply, but what's your reaction, which it sounds like you disagree with that. And then, you know, what's kind of your approach, I guess, or I guess, give me your take on the supply argument. Yeah, I mean, okay, right. The argument goes something like drugs are relatively cheap, they're cheaper than they used to be, OD deaths are higher than they used to be, clearly prohibition has failed. And my response to this is always you have to think about what the counterfactual is. What does the world absent prohibition look like? And the way I like to summarize this simply is it took 60, 50 years for the cartels to catch up on fentanyl. They're like only starting to catch up a bunch of other stuff. We're like just at the beginning of the synthetic drug boom. It's going to get much weirder from here. I mean, you're talking about if you want. Big Pharma had this stuff that had fentanyl in the 1960s. And we know what it looks like when you take Big Pharma even a little bit off the leash, right? Like the opioid crisis is a function of Big Pharma before anything else, seeding addiction in communities across the country through irresponsible prescribing practices and incentives to to doctors to engage in responsible prescribing practices. What I say is, you think it's bad that cartels can sell fentanyl? What if Jeff Bezos can sell fentanyl? Because this is what happens absent prohibition. The way that prohibition works, almost anybody who's an advocate of decriminalization, there's sort of two camps of people who will advocate for legalization. Some of them are libertarians. This argument doesn't work on them. Uh, you have to use different arguments on them. Um, but if you're a liberal who's an advocate of decriminalization, of legalization, what I say to you is like, look, it used to be the case that there was a substance that was destroying lives, wrecking our communities, damaging it. And the nations of the world came together and they prohibited chlorofluorocarbons. And now we don't have a hole in the ozone layer anymore. It's closing. It's great. Prohibition worked. The way that prohibition works is that it shuts off access to, you can think about it as a form of regulation. Prohibition is an extreme form of regulation. And it shuts off makes it much harder to obtain access to all of the efficiencies of a modern, unregulated capitalistic market, which are wonderful, in my opinion, when you're producing stuff people should have, like food and energy and education and all the rest, and are terrible when you're producing something that people should not have, that ruins their lives and kills them, and that they will consume compulsively to give them the opportunity to do so. So, you know, my view is that people make this argument, they are not really adequately assessing the counterfactual. They are not thinking about what life was like prior to prohibition, and what life would be like today, absent prohibition. And most people intuitively understand, and when you point out to them, there are lots of things that are prohibited that are dramatically reduced in availability once you prohibit them, they're like, yeah, that's kind of how it works. So let's talk about broadly what impact Oregon and 110 are having on the rest of the country in terms of their drug policy. Do you think that 110 
at the start. Well, I guess my my thought is, and you can tell me if you agree. My thought is at the start, 110 passed, more states got interested in doing something like Measure 110. And there were groups that were already advocating for it, and they're going to get stronger and take in more money and be able to run more of these measures or do it at the legislative level. And then 110 started to go south, and you saw states like Washington go, oh, let's pull back here for a second. Because as you said, they judicially decriminalized, and then the legislature had a special, they had a regular session, and then they had, I think they had to have a special session to get it all sorted out. But they did for the most part. What's like the current status of states yeah. and their drug policy? So I don't think, to the best of my knowledge, there are no states with serious efforts at decrim in the style of 110 as like a next year, next two years threat. I don't, I think everyone's kind of looking at what's happening in Oregon and going, that's not popular. It's not a thing you can really ram through. That's not where we want to go. There are sort of two trends that are important in my mind that will eventually sort of keep pushing the Overton window, you know, like Oregon's outside the Overton window. Or it's like right at the bleeding edge of the Overton window they're going to keep shifting it towards Oregon. One is what's happening in Canada. Many sub-provincial, some sub-provincial jurisdictions in Canada have moved towards decriminalization. They're moving in that direction. Canada is like all in on progressive drug policy. The other thing they're doing in Canada is I allude to it's called safer supply, which is the politically correct term for government distributed drugs. It's the government will, if you're a drug user, you can go to, uh, you can get access to government approved hydromorphone substitute for your opioid. It's a huge mess. It's not good. So I think, but I think it's been, it's it's attained massive political currency. It's huge for to debate in Canada right now. And what happens in Canada is sort of the bleeding edge, what happens in liberal America. And the other thing that I alluded to earlier is, you know, marijuana decriminalization charges ahead. The Biden administration just said that they're shifting marijuana schedule. So it's still not legal, but it's, if they in fact go ahead with rescheduling, then some things will change the regulatory level. I think that's sort of interesting. The bigger thing to me, the bigger story to me right now is psychedelic legalization. A number of jurisdictions have passed decriminalization and quote unquote medical psychedelic legalization. So you can use psychedelics for psychedelic assisted therapy. We uh, had one of the guys on uh, a couple yeah. episodes ago who's yeah. like the leader on that. Project, so we're going to pay so. for themselves any day now. They're going to pay for themselves. Uh, no, you can do this. You can get quote unquote natural medicine, Washington, Colorado, District of Columbia, Massachusetts, this ballot initiative, California, this ballot initiative. It's like, that's the next big thing. And Oregon did that in the same year as Measure 110 right. with Measure that's 109 at the same Measure 109, time. so I'm for that. Which is uh, so, so and, much fun. And, you know, I think the goal of that, look, I can defend this argument if you want, but medical marijuana, quote unquote, was a Trojan horse. The goal was to get people used to the idea of marijuana. The same thing is true of medical psychedelics, except they're going to do it faster this time. People have already swallowed the marijuana uh, arguments. So, and the reason I asked you that is because the Oregonian actually covered, they picked up on, and I think this might have been something that you covered. Oh, no, actually, I think your piece was earlier. So you had polling earlier showing Measure 110 being unpopular. There was a poll that was done like a week and a half ago, and it was by a group called the Foundation for Drug Policy Pollution, uh, Solutions, who I think is in Canada. They're American and Canadian. They're connected to another group called SANS, Smart Approaches to Marijuana. They're good guys. I like to And guess. so I, I was reading this because I hadn't heard of them before. And so I thought it was interesting they were doing polling in Oregon. And 64% say they support repealing parts of 110. 56 of Oregon would support total repeal. And to me, this was a couple of things. This was obviously, you know, folks are starting to work on this. And the warning shot is the full repeal 
to the drug advocates, to the legalization advocates who are like, we will straight up go with full repeal if you do not get with the program. The other one is it's pretty clear there's lots of this that isn't working and they want to do it. But I also thought that this they used Emerson College, which is not an Oregon pollster. They're nationally well-known, well-respected pollster. Typically, the reason you might do something like that is if you were firing this warning shot, not just in Oregon, but across the country. And this to me, I was like, oh, here's the Oregonian. But this warning shot is across the country of Oregonians in a very blue consistently blue state, especially at the national level, is not supportive of this. Don't you dare think about it doing it in any of our other swing or red states, right? That's what I thought. And if you have any thoughts on that, but I just thought that was super interesting. Yeah. And there have been a couple of polls doing that. Look, showing now that Oregonians are are not happy with the 110 situation. Yeah. I mean, look, we talked to DPA a little bit. There's a well-funded push for what I describe broadly as drug liberalization, right? Because, you know, legalization, uh, decriminalization, whatever. The, the goal is liberalization in the sense of making it more, ma- making it easier to and more socially approved to consume drugs, to sell, buy, produce, et cetera, possess drugs. And there are versions of that that people like, and there are versions of that that people don't like. Well, you know, look, Americans tolerate all illegal drugs. Alcohol is a legal drug. Alcohol is an addictive substance. It's harmful. It's legal. We tried a good experiment. We decided we did not like it. We want alcohol to be legal. That's the American. We live in democracy. That's how it goes. Nicotine is is a legal drug. We mostly don't like it. It's strongly socially disproved. I think nicotine will probably, uh, certainly cigarettes will probably be banned in my lifetime because we don't like cigarettes. They're not cool anymore. But my point is, you know, there is, shall we say, a front who believes very firmly in the unjustness of drug prohibition per se, substance prohibition per se, believes that people should be, you know, what I like to say is that there are two very strong arguments for substance liberalization. One is that drugs are fun. And the other one is that people should be allowed to do what they want with their bodies. Those are good arguments in my mind. They aren't, I disagree with them, but they are persuasive <laughs> arguments for a lot of people. And so there are people who believe both of those arguments very firmly across the board and consistently, and they will push everywhere that they can to advance that broader agenda in the same way that any other political actor does. And so if, you know, if 110 went too early or 110 is not working, they will try some other stuff. They will try safer supply. They will try, you see the stuff with supervised consumption sites now. That's an attempt to scale. All of it is an attempt to scale social acceptability of drug liberalization. That is the big picture agenda. And the question is like, where can you score victories? Where can you get defeats? Multnomah County got smacked really hard because they were getting ready to distribute foil and straws to people. And Everyone it's was going, like, it's federally this, illegal. This isn't like needle exchange where the needle can kill you. The foil and the straw are probably not that dirty that you're using. Like they're not going to get you sick. It's the fentanyl that's killing you. Anyway, I love, I so, love, I love very briefly. I love the safe <laughs> smoking lit. The like literature trying to justify this because it's like, so like the like, needle exchange, the argument makes sense, right? It's like, if you have HIV or hep C and you get blood and you can be the blood. Okay. It's like a bloodborne illness. That makes sense. The argument with safe smoking kids, if you look into it is like, I have cracks on my lips and there's dried blood on the crack on my lips and then it gets on the the pipe and then you have a crack on your lips and the blood is transferred by it. It makes no sense. No, it is totally just it, because they want to enable drug use. Yes, 100%. So the last thing I want to ask you about is state level policy and what could be what could come next. And I guess I'll just I'm going to preempt you a tiny bit. So Ted Wheeler came out and said he wants the legislature to ban or give cities the ability to ban public drug use, which is probably not, I wouldn't say it's its a full solution, but it is a solution that helps them a little bit, at least with the look of Portland, with the way Portland looks, because it looks bad that people are using drugs out in the open. They would rather you do it at home, right? And so 
that's going to be a big push in the state legislature, I think, in 2024. Here, what do you think is the next other drug policy that folks should be dealing with at the state level or should be looking at at the state level to improve? Um, Talking about Oregon specifically, I would say a couple of things. One is, yeah, if you can get consensus on what Wheeler's calling for, he's going to try to do through ordinance and he couldn't. So he wants law. If you get consensus on that, great. Go ahead with it. You know, I'd say a couple of other things. One is getting more aggressive about transparency with the NGOs that are receiving funding for through through 110. And actually, they, there are some transparency requirements imposed by by the, the bill that formalizes the measure. They file the stuff with the Oregon Health Authority. You can obtain it through freedom of information law requests. I have obtained several of them from freedom of information law requests. Like, I report in the piece, I'm like, they got back at these like recovery services that are getting millions of dollars in state funds that are like, yeah, we're spending it on beads and traditional Indian crafts. And we're sending it on handing out food to drug users. And it's like, wasn't this just to be spent on treatment? Wasn't that the goal of it? So, you know. This sounds like Obama phones again. Right. So A, spending money on trying to push for transparency on that front more proactively. And some of that comes at the level of just citizen journalism or Republicans in the state legislature or Democrats are concerned about this, highlighting these issues, which ties into more tightly constraining what funding is used for. Because really, look, I would love it if the revenue from state legal marijuana and other revenue, because legal marijuana is never going to be a big revenue raiser, was going towards constructing robust treatment capacity in the state of Oregon. The Oregon is a huge treatment problem. They need to solve it. That, I think, is a huge priority that should be supported by everyone left and right. Yeah, I mean, look, the third thing is, to the extent that they had treatment capacity, Oregon had one of the longest standing drug court programs in the United States. Drug courts are not perfect, but they seem to help. My argument is that a variation on drug courts looks ends up looking about as close to the Portugal model as you're going to get in the United States in terms of sort of liberality and treatment entering the criminal justice process. And so to the extent that you can start getting people back into the drug court system and to the extent that you can shift, you know, if, if you can't just repeal 110, I prefer to repeal 110. If you can't just repeal 110, then trying to get people not just to, you know, maybe have to call a hotline, but actively referring them into drug courts if they don't comply with the terms of ticketing or if they are issued tickets over and over and over again is a plausible and I suspect democratically digestible first step. I will say I hope so, but because the drug courts were basically dismantled for lack of funding because that funding was redirected and because the push for decriminalization was based on putting people in courts is wrong and putting them in treatment is right. Drug courts, regardless of how they're formed, if they happen in a courtroom are not going to be acceptable to the fringe and therefore are going to be impossible because of the way our political structure is here, where some of those folks are in positions of power, unfortunately. But I love what you're saying. And I totally agree with it. Alex, you can take us out of here. Yeah, Charles. Well, thank you so much for spending so much time with us and talking about a variety of questions. Before we let you go, if folks want to reach out to you, you know, we have a lot of state legislators, policy advisors, grassroots activists, all the sort. They want to reach out to you, ask you any questions, maybe send any hate mail your way, read more about your work. How would they go about doing that? Yep. They can always find me on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. I run a Substack. If they want my Substack, which is mostly about drugs, it's called The Causal Fallacy, C-A-U-S-A-L. The causal, it's, You can find it at thecausalfallacy.com. It's a really nerdy joke is the source of the title. That's what James Q. Well said. And of course, if they want to get in touch with me in a professional capacity, they should reach out to my colleagues at Manhattan Institute. They can find us at manhattan.institute, which is very easy to remember. Awesome. Well, Charles, thank you so much again for your time. And everybody, thanks so much again for listening. Uh, Make sure to check us out on YouTube and give a five-star rating. Thanks again.